Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is February 23rd, 2024, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Treatment. And our guest skeptic is Mr. Ethan Milne. He's a marketing PhD student at the Ivy Business School, Western University. He researches how moral outrage and status-seeking personalities motivate social media aggression and how retribution can motivate consumer donations. Welcome to the S-Gem, son. Thanks so much. I've been hearing these episodes for so long in the house while you're recording, so it's nice to finally be on one. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on the show. Now, I was trying to explain how you're doing this PhD and (laughs) consumer behavior, but quite honest, I really don't understand what you're doing. So could you give the listeners just like a a bit of an elevator pitch to tell them what you're actually doing? Because you're in your final year of your PhD, I think. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you've talked to enough PhDs that you know that this is the question that every PhD hates to answer. Can you give a quick description? But really briefly, what I look at is why and how consumers behave aggressively. And when I say consumers, that's really consumer psychology or marketing speak for people. The common joke is that to make a marketing paper, you can take a psychology paper and replace individuals with consumers and you're good to go. So most of what I do looks at why people attack brands online. So I'll use things like large scale Twitter data to assess how people respond to social incentives Uh, for behaving aggressively. So if people are rewarded for being very angry on Twitter, which is something that I'm sure we see all the time, they're more likely to do so in the future. And then I usually look at that from a brand perspective, trying to figure out, well, what can brands do to mitigate the risks of status-seeking consumers coming after them online? Okay. I I, I think I understand it a little bit better, but are are you kids still using the term Twitter? I thought it was called X now. It's the social media site formerly known as Twitter now. Ah, uh, yes, like Prince, the artist yeah. formerly known as Prince. All right. Well, now that we got that out of the way, we're go- we're going to do a case. We're actually going to do a medical case. Yeah. Well, Dad, you're the doctor, so I think you should give the case. Okay, I'll give the case. A 20-year-old male presents to the emergency department with palpitations. After a good history, followed by a directed physical examination, and appropriate investigations, you suspect he's suffering from a major depressive disorder with comorbidity of anxiety. Now, he's not a threat to himself or others, and he really does want some help. So you arrange for him to be followed up by his family physician to discuss possible treatment options, which include things like medication. He expresses concerns that taking a synthetic drug to treat his depression wouldn't allow himself to be his authentic self. All right, so that's the case. But why don't you start with some background information? Well, major depressive disorder, which is commonly known as depression, is a significant mental health condition. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide, and it's a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. And it affects an estimated 5 to 10% of the population at any given time, with variations depending on demographic factors such as age and gender. It is generally more common in women than in men, and it can occur at any age, though it often first appears during late adolescence to mid-20s. 
The National Health Institute, or NIH, estimates around 8% or 21 million U.S. adults over the age of 18 have experienced a major depressive episode in the previous year. Various factors can increase the risk of developing major depression, including things like a genetic predisposition, personal or family history of depression, a major change in someone's life, trauma, stress, and certain physical illnesses and medication. Depression has been reported to be most prevalent amongst young women aged 12 to 17 at about 29%. And the current diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder are outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. These criteria serve as a guideline for clinicians to diagnose depression. To be diagnosed with major depressive disorder, a person must experience at least one of the two symptoms for at least two weeks. And those two symptoms are either you have to have a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. So with the depressed mood, it has to be most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated by either subjective reporting. So you say, you know, I'm feeling sad, empty, or hopeless, or observations made by others, you know, you're appearing tearful. So that's the one. And the other one is the loss of interest or pleasure. And this is markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. So you have to have at least one of these two symptoms for at least two weeks. And the person must also have five or more of the following symptoms during the same two-week period. And these symptoms represent a change from previous functioning. So they can include things like significant weight loss or gain. Yeah, so that could be a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Something like insomnia or hypersomnia. So trouble sleeping or sleeping too much nearly every day. Psychomotor agitation or retardation. So this is noticeable by others, not merely the subjective feeling of restlessness or being slowed down. Fatigue or loss of energy. And again, nearly every day for that one. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. And this is nearly every day, not merely self-reproach or guilt about being sick. Diminished ability to think or concentrate. So being indecisive nearly every day. And finally, recurrent thoughts of death. Yeah, so recurrent suicidal ideations without a specific plan or suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. So these symptoms must cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. They must not be attributed to the physiologic effects of substances or other medical condition. Also, the occurrence of major depressive episode is not better explained by something like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, delusional disorder, or other specified or unspecified schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders. And there's several treatment options for major depressive disorder, and often patients will do a combination of things. It can be a challenge to treat depression effectively, and the evidence to support different treatments varies. Yeah, so I'm just going to list some of the major ones that are used. So, you know, we like to start with lifestyle and home remedies. It's not always about medications. And I think that's a really good place to start with about regular exercise, getting regular um, amount of sleep and having a healthy diet but also psychotherapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, psychodynamic therapy. And then, you know, there are medications like antidepressants and some other medications are used for depression. 
but there are other non-pharmacotherapeutic treatments like meditation and mindfulness. Some people get so bad, they, they do require hospitalization. And then there is electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now, that's, that's for the most severe cases that haven't really responded to any other treatments. And this is where we start to get into some of the consumer behaviors, because while the prevalence of depression has increased, we're also looking at markets for treatments for depression increasing. So the market for herbal supplements and other natural remedies has also grown with an expected industry value of $8.5 billion by 2025. And we're looking at something called the natural preference which is a pervasive and culturally universal phenomenon. It's defined as when consumers have a favorable attitude towards specifically natural products. Now, I took you through all the classic movies from the 80s and even some of the 90s, so I'm really surprised that you didn't say billions of dollars with a pinky <laughs> up near the corner of your mouth. But okay, I've still got some work to do. I didn't go to evil medical school. Uh, that's right. You didn't. I did. All right. So yeah. the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, has not formally defined the term, quote, natural for labeling purposes. The FDA allows the term natural to be used when a food does not contain anything artificial that would not typically be expected in that food. Well, that's a lot of background information about major depressive disorders and a little bit about consumer behavior. Let's get into the clinical question that they were trying to ask or solve with this publication. So in this publication, the authors are really interested in what motivates consumers to take natural drugs. And they had four questions or hypotheses that they were testing. So hypothesis one is that consumers will demonstrate an overall preference for natural drugs, which the authors define as drugs that are derived from plants over synthetic drugs. And these are drugs that the authors define as being manufactured in a lab or in some other synthetic way. Hypothesis two is that consumers will exhibit a general reluctance to treat psychological conditions compared with physical conditions. So it's a little hard to understand the boundaries of psychological versus physical conditions. But in general, we understand that something like anxiety feels much more psychological than a broken leg. So that's what the authors are focusing on, the difference between intention to treat psychological and physical conditions. The third hypothesis is that the relative preference for natural drugs over synthetic drugs will be even stronger when consumers are treating psychological conditions rather than physical conditions. And in the final hypothesis, the authors explore the mechanism for that effect. What they hypothesize is that the concern that synthetic drugs are more likely to alter the true self than natural drugs serves as a key mechanism connecting the type of health conditions that a consumer might have and their preference for using natural drugs. So they just stuff a lot of stuff in this paper. And is, is this typical, like, you know, for consumer behavioral studies and stuff like that? Because, you know, I'm, I'm usually reading, you know, oh, we use drug X for a heart attack, let's say. And they have one hypothesis, they have a primary outcome, they, they may have like a whole bunch of secondary outcomes, but they usually have one question they're trying to answer and only run one experiment. In this case, they had four questions or four hypotheses and they ran like six or seven experiments. Is this, is this typical in your world of literature? 
this is extremely typical. And if anything, this is sort of a reduced version of what you might typically see in papers. So to give some context, when I do my papers, I've had papers that have eight or nine hypotheses. I'll have an H1, an H2, an H2A, H2B, H2C, and we'll go down the list. And part of that is that specifically in consumer psychology and marketing more broadly, we're not just interested in if we do something, do we get a certain outcome? We're often really interested in can we turn the effect on and off with different moderators? And also we want to explore the mechanism of effect. And doing that takes a lot of different studies chained together and a lot of different hypotheses that sort of build on each other to tell an overall story. Probably explains why it was hard for me to go through this paper. I'm a, I'm a simple <laughs> Canadian, so I can only do hypothesis A. I, I, I don't know if you saw it too, but not only do they have um, the six studies, well, they have the archival study and then they have studies two to six, but in that there's study 5A and 5B, but they also have their supplementary studies and there's like three or four of those. <sighs> okay, well, why don't you just give us the reference? <laughs> sure. So the reference to the study is Lee T and Gal D, 2023. Consumers prefer natural medicines more when treating psychological than physical conditions. And this was published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology, which is a really popular journal in my field. Well, they clearly went to the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing. It's right there. Consumers prefer natural medicines more when treating psychological than physical. Why did I have to read six or seven studies contained in this thing? It's all right there in the title. It's it, boom, we're done. I like it. All right, let's go through the PCOT. What was the population? So because this paper has multiple studies, sometimes the population is going to differ a little bit. And we'll get into it when we get to the studies, because study one is specifically an archival study. But for the rest of the studies, they're recruiting participants from MTurk. And MTurk is an online platform that's owned by Amazon that allows anyone to sign up and begin completing surveys, experiments, or other tasks in exchange for monetary compensation. So usually... When we're running psychological experiments, we don't want to just run psychological experiments on the undergrads that are at our school because undergrads, especially undergrads at business schools, aren't really going to represent the broader population. So having an online panel where you can recruit something like a representative sample of the American population in this case means that you can be a little bit more sure of your study results and you also have access to a much larger pool of participants. So, so are you saying that undergrads at Ivy are, are different or special? Special is a good word for it. Okay. And, and what happens when you become a PhD student at Ivy? I think you become extra special. And when you're only a master's student like me? Less special. Less special. Okay. Yeah. So there's degrees yeah. of being special. All right. Absolutely. What was the intervention that they were looking at? So again, because they did multiple studies, there's some quibbling about what the exact intervention was for the entire paper. But in general, the authors are comparing consumer choice between synthetic drugs and natural drugs, and also physical conditions or psychological conditions. Yeah, so that's what they're really doing as sort of an intervention in comparison. They're taking, do you prefer synthetic drugs or natural drugs? And does it matter if it's a psychological condition versus a physical condition? How about their primary outcome? So their primary outcome is their preference for synthetic drugs and their preference for natural drugs. And these are usually evaluated on a one to seven Likert scale, which is asking them, how likely are you to use this drug? One to seven with one being not very likely, seven being very likely. And how about their secondary outcome? The process evidence for true self-concern as a mediator of their hypothesized effect. 
Yeah, I really don't understand what that means. Okay, and what the, <laughs> what type of study is this? Uh, so most of the studies are online surveys. So the author's conclusions were, quote, while consumers have a general preference for natural drugs over synthetic drugs, this preference is stronger when the goal is to treat psychological rather than physical conditions. Process evidence indicates an important mechanism that explains the amplified natural preference for treating psychological conditions. Consumers are more concerned about their true self being altered when treating psychologic conditions, and they perceive natural drugs to be less likely than synthetic drugs to affect their true self. End of quote. All right. So uh, we normally have um, a pretty standardized uh, quality checklist for randomized control trials, observational studies, systematic reviews, diagnostic studies, those types of things. So we had to find a quality checklist for reporting of survey studies. It's called CROSS. Now, there are 28 quality questions. That would be a very long podcast. Emergency uh, clinicians don't tend to have a squirrel that long of attention span. So we're, we're I'm not going to go through all 28. We'll, we'll put the complete list on the blog. But Ethan, are there any any that you really want to flag? And, and, and I'll nudge you towards maybe five you want to mention? Sure. Um, so the first one I think is important to talk about is just the background of the paper in general. So what has been previously done and why do this study or set of studies at all? So the first thing that we already mentioned is that the herbal supplement industry is growing and it's already quite large. And so it's important to understand why consumers seek out herbal remedies. Now, I know on this podcast, you look at evidence-based medicine, and I think it's fair to say that many herbal and natural supplements are not always evidence-based. So it's important to understand why people seek out those sorts of medicines so that you can design interventions to help address their concerns. So as for why the study is done, it's pretty clear they want to understand the mechanisms for why consumers might prefer natural or complementary alternative medicine. And as for what's been previously done, the authors discuss that there's a lot of work already suggesting that consumers generally prefer natural products, but not a lot of work on exactly why that is the case. So the next thing I want to talk about is the pre-registration of studies. Now, I know the norms are going to differ a little bit between fields here, but in psychology and in social sciences more generally, pre-registration is still kind of a new thing. We had a whole replication crisis 10 to 20-ish years ago, depending on where you start. And it's been a long time coming that people have started to realize that our studies are a little bit more credible when we upfront say what we expect to happen and how we're going to analyze our data. So I want to commend the authors for pre-registering most of their studies. In fact, I believe five total studies were pre-registered in this paper out of a total six that they could have pre-registered. One of their studies is an archival study, and because the data is already public, they couldn't credibly pre-register that study. So in terms of the credibility of their data, I think it's a really good thing that they pre-registered things. Yeah, I think it's really good about pre-registration, and it applies to medicine as well. I mean, tell people what you're planning to do, then do what you plan to do, what you said you were going to do, and then report on that that you did what you said you were going to do. And I think that really gives a bunch of legitimacy and it gets away from some of the 
manipulation that can take place uh, when you're conducting research. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I hope you don't replicate that crisis again and have more problems in your field. And the next thing to talk about is their sampling plan and recruitment strategy. I think there's some interesting things to discuss there, specifically how they went about recruiting participants. I think there's interesting things to talk about here with respect to how that interacts with pre-registration. So you'll notice if you dig into the pre-registrations that the authors have, they actually pre-registered less participants than they ended up collecting in the actual paper. So in a lot of their pre-registrations, they might say, we're going to collect 160 participants. And in, in some of the studies, they might say, well, we recruited 250 participants. And one reason they have to do that is because on online platforms like MTurk, because you're paying people to take studies, there's a big problem of participants being very lazy and not actually considering the study um, fully or having bots that go in and answer studies automatically for you. And so the authors have to do a lot of quality controls to exclude participants who aren't really paying attention or who might not even be real. And so in a lot of the different studies, they'll report that they've had to exclude participants for failing something called an attention check. And an attention check is something that we do in psychological surveys to make sure that participants are actually paying attention. So an example of that might be if they're answering a long survey with many questions, right in the middle, you might have a question that says, select the color blue from a list of three different colors. And you know that if participants aren't selecting the color blue, they're either not paying attention or they're not real. And so in a lot of the studies in this paper, they have to exclude a lot of participants. And that means that sometimes their samples aren't always identical to the actual samples that they've pre-registered. That is so cool. There's so much to research outside of my field that I had no idea about. I mean, we talk about, you know, being explicit about your inclusion and exclusion criteria, and it's usually pretty clean. It's based on demographic information and things like that. But, you know, hey, are you paying attention to the survey? Come on, what's the color blue? You know, that's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, and and an interesting thing as well is that they report uh, a lot of their manipulation checks in the paper. And, and usually when papers do this, they exclude those participants and then they show you the results of this study with those excluded participants. But throughout their supplementary data, they also rerun all their analyses to show you that even if they include those participants that they took away for maybe not paying attention, all of their major results still replicate. So that, that's, a, that's a nice sanity check there as well. So that's a bit of a sensitivity analysis then just to see, you know, does your does your data uh, stand up with your either missing data or inclusion and exclusion criteria changed around a bit? Yeah. And, and, and one thing I do want to note, though, is the importance of accurately reporting some of your exclusions. So I noticed, for example, in study three, they go from 247 recruited participants down to 201 participants but they only report that 13 were excluded based on an attention check. And they don't really talk about, you know, where the other 33 participants came from or, wh or where they went. And it would be nice to be able to check that uh, in the author's data. And, and, and that's another thing that reminds me of something they did that's really cool in the paper, which is that they published their data online for anyone to access. And it's on an Open Science Foundation link. So they have all their study data up there, presumably anonymized, so you're not violating any ethical concerns. Usually when you do an ethics application for studies like this, you say, we may post the anonymized data to an online database. So anyone who wants to see how those manipulation checks were performed or where the missing participants went can go and manually check that themselves. 
I wish medical studies did that as well. You know, if people have volunteered or even paid to be part of a study, and often it may involve uh, having a procedure done on you or consuming a medication or being in the placebo group, that kind of stuff. I think that data with without identifying who those specific people are should be available for other people, other researchers and post-publication peer review to go in there and say, yeah, does do the numbers all add up? Because who hasn't made a mistake um, when doing statistical analysis? Yeah. And, and to be fair, I'm sure it's a lot harder to do that in medicine because the data you're collecting is so much more consequential. You know, in some of the surveys we're doing, we're asking people, what's your favorite color? Whereas in medicine, you might be asking people about really personal stuff. Um, I imagine it'd be much harder to get those sorts of studies or publish an open data like that through an ethics board. One thing that I also wanted to talk about was conflict of interest. One thing that I'll note here that I think usually pops up in medical papers is in medical papers, you talk about your conflict of interest. You know, if you're doing research on a pharmacological drug, the authors might be paid by the pharma company and that, being, that might be valuable to know. But in this paper, they simply don't report their conflicts of interest. Well, I'd like to say that uh, it's getting better with regards to people uh, addressing conflicts of interest, but it's usually on the honor system. And um, research has shown that we're not so good at being honorable about recognizing our conflicts of interest. And there can be some cognitive dissonance to what we might consider a conflict of interest. So, yeah, I think we could do better on that. And uh, I didn't know about psychology research, whether people are required to or it's an expectation that you identify not just financial conflicts of interest, but you could also have intellectual conflicts of interest, which are even harder to identify. What do you mean by intellectual conflicts of interest? I've never heard about that before. Oh, so intellectual conflicts of interest. Let's say your lab has a hypothesis that you're um, really investigating and your career is based upon that. That'd be pretty important to, you know, potentially influence your interpretation of the results, right? And so you can see how that would be a little harder to tease out, right? Because this might be your life's work. And that would be a real loss if your experiments came out and didn't show what you were hoping they would show. Um, and they conflicted with some of your previous work. And, you know, so when you're publishing, it's nice to know that, yeah, no, this is somebody who's spent X amount of time or years or publication in this area. It makes them an expert. So it has a upside to it. But there is a potential downside with regards to getting those blinders on and uh, being in a bit of an echo chamber in your own research lab. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and I can think of many examples of very eminent psychologists who have clung on to theories long after maybe they should have, specifically because it was a theory that they made their name on. Yeah. And so there is that intellectual conflict of interest that can creep in. And then, and it's only a potential bias, right? And it's a potential mm -hmm. bias. And it's certainly not an ad hominem attack. It is just a, this is, this is human psychology, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's sort of like the Ikea bias. We built it. It must be fantastic. Our research must be more important because we built it. We designed it. We did this and, and you, you can get connected to it. So trying to actively sort of have a little bit of a separation is, is really important to get at the actual quote unquote truth. And when I say truth, I'm talking about the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that effect size. And so can we, can we mitigate or, or guard against as much spin as possible? 
Yeah, so I I mean, in this paper, they don't explicitly say whether or not they have a conflict of interest. Um, I know from personal experience that on the submission platforms for a journal like this, they will have to indicate if they do have a conflict of interest. And I've seen sometimes that papers will include a conflict of interest if it's applicable. Um, I think it's pretty unlikely that the authors would have a conflict of interest here. I mean, I, it's a little bit hard to imagine how they might be paid off by industry to do something like this. And I, th- this paper doesn't really relate to like a big theory that either of them have really staked their reputations on. It's just something that it would be nice to have more standardly reported in a bunch of different psychology journals. Yeah, if we could have an objective, agreed upon way of doing that, that would be really helpful. Because I did say it's easier to quantify financial conflicts of interest. I mean, a dollar, a hundred dollars, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. These are something that we can put a value to and quantify. But you're in behavioral economics and psychology type stuff. Here's a free pen with a logo. You know that even little <laughs> little things can creep in and cause potential bias. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's lots of studies showing that, you know, just small acts of kindness can make people really like you. And mm. and it's sort of underrated. You know, it won't show up in a big financial disclosure. You don't need to be paid $10,000 to come away with a overly positive perception of somebody. We did mention that there was about a half a dozen studies, and you were kind enough to summarize study one through six, and I'm going to spare the SGMers from listening to us go through each of those six studies, and I'm just going to jump down and say, Ethan, what is the key result from this study? So the key results from these different studies is that across the board, pretty much every participant really preferred natural drugs over synthetic drugs. So that's hypothesis one. Consumers preferred the natural to the synthetic. But then the authors were also interested in understanding differential preferences for natural or synthetic drugs, depending on whether participants were experiencing a psychological condition or a physical condition. And in the studies that directly compared psychological to physical conditions, the preference for natural drugs over synthetic was even greater when consumers were asked to imagine having a psychological condition rather than a physical condition. And the last big result is that the authors tested the mechanistic effect of true self-concern on participants' preference for natural over synthetic drugs. So they showed that when it came to psychological illnesses, consumers cared a bit more about preserving their true self. And, And that makes sense. We tend to identify a little bit more with our brains than we do with our bodies. And so when a condition was described as affecting a participant's mind or brain, they were more concerned about preserving their true self. And as a result, their subsequent preference for natural drugs was higher than their preference for synthetic drugs. Wow. All right. So that's the results section. Now it's my favorite time. I get to talk nerdy with you, Ethan, and we're going to have five things that we're going to go through. I know you're looking forward to talking nerdy with your dad. Um, (laughs) So here are the five things. We're going to start with methodology. And you wanted to point out some good things that they did. And and we've already touched upon those things like pre-registration and open data. But there's a couple of other things that you wanted to mention that they did well with regards to their methodology and something that maybe was a bit confusing. Yeah, there was some insider baseball going on there that I really enjoyed reading about as I was going through the paper and also their supplementary analysis. So 
One thing I really like that the authors did, personally, I think they went totally overboard on this, but in a very good way. So the authors noticed that when they did a study that had, I think, 400 plus participants, they noticed that when they were writing a psychological condition, that A in the term a psychological condition was capitalized when it shouldn't have been. And so to deal with that, they repeated the entire study and they did it all over again, I think pre-registered, and they replicated all of the results. So they went really overboard on making sure that everything was rock solid. So it was just like somebody typed in a word and it had the capital letter A instead of the yep. lowercase A and they went, oh, we better redo the whole study. Now, are we are we blaming the PhD student for that <laughs> typo or... I'm, I'm sure the professor would fall on their sword for the PhD. Oh, of course. Case, yes, but, yes. But but here, like, I mean, the 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 capitalized A didn't even change the meaning of the sentence. I, I doubt a single participant was confused by an accidentally capitalized A, but it's still nice that they just did it again. And, and at the very least, they replicated their results. All right. And one other interesting thing under the methodology section that you noticed was there was a little scale switching going on. Yeah, so... The way that the authors were measuring preferences for different drugs was asking people to answer on a seven-point scale whether or not they were likely to take a particular drug, either a natural drug or a synthetic drug. But one thing I noticed was that between some different studies, the scale of the scale actually switched around a little bit. So in one study, they had a one to seven scale, which was pretty common across all their studies and I would say is pretty common in our field. But in one specific study, they had a nine-point scale instead. Now, I don't know if that was a typo, or maybe that was a really early study that they did, and, and, and later on they switched to the more standard one to seven scale. But I think scale differences like that are important to mention because we're already looking at hypothetical behaviors. And it's not obvious that consumers can really distinguish between, say, a six out of seven on a scale and an eight out of nine on a scale. You know, you don't really know if people are thinking of those scales in the same exact way. Now, when it comes to looking at the results of those studies, I, I don't think the, the different levels of the scale, or whether it's a seven-point scale or a nine-point scale, really matters for the interpretation of the results. But it's one thing to mention that they weren't necessarily always consistent with their DV. Yeah, it would be nice if they had been because, you know, if you say seven, like, strongly agree. What is a eight? Strongly, strongly agree. And a nine is, no, no, I really mean it this time. I strongly, strongly, strongly agree or something yeah. like that. And like you said, it may have been a typo. You know, we've seen at least one other typo, A. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the other thing is all they had to do was say, hey, we we had an earlier study. It went to nine points or something. Just Just some, you know, a single sentence or two to explain where that came from would have been really helpful. I think there should really be only, you know, two scales, one that goes to five because I can count to it on one hand. And the other scale should go to 11 because that's the only other scale in 11 point scale. All right. I know I'm getting too weird on you here. Let's get into nerdy point number two. And this is about the Hawthorne effect. And this is not a new topic to SGMers. We've talked about the Hawthorne effect before. So one of the natures of online lab experiments is that participants are completing these in exchange for financial compensation. So there is prior research on the Hawthorne effect suggesting that knowing one is observed can change how one responds to surveys. You know, maybe you answer in a survey in a way that makes you look better than you actually are. 
And in this case, you might be answering surveys to make you seem like a better participant than you actually are in order to receive financial compensation. And this is going to be a problem that's going to affect pretty much all papers in my field, because across most of them, you're going to be using online lab experiment samples. And to do that, you need to actually pay people. It would probably be unethical to not pay them. So it's a hard problem to get around, but it's something that I think people should keep in mind when they're analyzing studies. Um, the third point was about data analysis, and you wanted to say a few things about their data analysis. Yeah, so th there's a few things that I liked here. Um, so one was that a lot of their studies did within subjects analysis. And this is some psychology jargon, but within subjects analysis means that when you have different conditions in your experiment, instead of having one group of participants see one condition and another group of participants see a different condition, instead, you have the same participants seeing the two different conditions one after the other, usually in a randomized order. So that's one nice thing they did because it means that they can look at a within participant level. You can see at the participant level, if people are preferring the natural drug more than the synthetic drug, and because they're the same people, it's easier to compare those two numbers. And the other nice thing I did like is that across almost all of their studies, they summarize which participants exhibited their hypothesized behavior versus not. And this is an important thing to mention. A lot of the analysis that the authors are doing are sort of difference in means type analysis. So they're looking at if the preference for natural drugs has a higher mean value than the preference for synthetic drugs. But there's going to be lots of heterogeneity in how participants respond to the different stimuli. There's going to be some participants who prefer synthetic drugs to natural drugs. But the authors aren't hypothesizing that their effects are going to apply to every single participant, just more participants. So they can actually show that the bulk of participants, the plurality in most cases, do exhibit a bias in favor of synthetic drugs, and the remainder are sort of split between having no preference or a preference for synthetic drugs. And they also did a little, uh, a little bootstrapping, not, not of the participants, but of the data. Yeah. And this is a thing that we do in psychology whenever we're doing things like mediation models. So the authors have to bootstrap their results because they're using a technique called mediation. And, and mediation just means that they're looking for mechanisms that explain the effect of one variable on another. So to give one example, you can imagine punching somebody in the face makes them cry. That's an effect. An intervention is punching somebody in the face and they start crying. Wow, you went really dark. You, you marketers are hardcore. I'm on a medical podcast and we're talking about physical conditions. So punching somebody in the face might make them cry. But you might be interested in the mechanism of that effect. Maybe punching somebody in the face gives them a really bad bruise or it breaks their nose. That bruise or that nose breaking would be the mechanism. And when marketers do a mediation model, they're looking for that third in-between variable that explains the effect of one variable on another. And to do that, they're bootstrapping a bunch of chained together linear regressions and repeating them 5,000, 10,000 times with you know, minor data substitutions just to make sure that the effect is robust. So in their studies, one thing that's interesting is they're doing different sorts of mediation analyses because some of their studies analyze participants on a within subjects level, level and others in a between subjects level. And that requires different mediation techniques. And so that also means that their bootstrapping values are a little bit different. So in study 5A, they're using something called the Memor macro with 10,000 bootstrap samples. 
But in study 5B, they're using the more traditional Hayes process model 4 with 5,000 bootstrap samples. Oh, you were getting uber nerdy with that stuff. (laughs) So let's talk about nerdy point number four. This is about imagined versus real. Yeah. So one thing that's going to be a little bit different about this paper than a lot of medical papers is I know that you like to talk about the poo, the patient-oriented outcome. I do like to talk about poo. That is true. And I love that name. But one thing that we have to do in a lot of psychology studies is ask people to imagine hypothetical examples. So in this case, a lot of the studies that the researchers did were asking participants to imagine a level of pain. And if you visualize pain on a 1 to 10 scale, in a lot of the studies, the researchers were asking participants to imagine pain at a level 7 out of 10. And they were using that either as a psychological 7 out of 10 or a physical 7 out of 10, and then seeing how that downstream impacted their willingness to take different types of drugs. So there's an interesting question to be had here about external validity. How valid are participants' imagined experiences for determining what they would actually choose in the real world? Yeah, that's that's really a good point. So, you know, if you have to imagine the pain of a broken leg versus breaking your leg, and clearly it would be unethical to do that. And it does yeah. take me back to one of my favorite 80s movies of all time, The Princess Bride, where, uh, you know, our protagonist is being tortured. And it's like, and how does that make you feel? Right. And so you, you actually can't do that with these types of online surveys. You have to set up this scenario, this hypothetical. Okay. Imagine that you have seven out of 10 pain, physical pain. You know, what would your preference be a synthetic drug versus a natural remedy? Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, relative to some other studies, I mean, this isn't too extreme an imagination exercise. You know, there might be papers that ask people to imagine themselves in the position of a CEO. And it's not obvious that everyone has this internal sense of what it feels like to be to be a CEO. But a lot of people have a good sense of what it means to experience physical pain or to experience psychological pain. So that that that's one reason that this concern would be mitigated for me. And you mentioned one ethical issue with it, which is that, you know, you can't go around breaking people's legs. I know I used a a punching people in the face example before. We can't actually do that in a psychology experiment. Nor do we want to. Nor do we want to. All right. And the fifth and final nerdy point we wanted to talk about was this appeal to nature. Yeah, so this research points out the potential issue of an appeal to nature. And this is an informal logical fallacy where you argue that something is good because it is natural or bad if it's unnatural. And this doesn't really make sense if you think about all the things that are natural that are bad for us, like arsenic, cyanide, and uranium. And if you're looking for medical therapy, it might be better to determine the potential benefits and harms rather than whether whether it's just considered natural. Yeah, one of the flippant things I say uh, from time to time is uh, dog poop, again, back to the poo, dog poo is natural and I don't take it three times a day. What really matters is that what you're taking, does it work or not? Does it have a net benefit? Is the potential benefits outweigh the potential harms? And less concerning is, was it a synthetically made product or is this some naturally occurring substance? I'm more concerned about whether it works or not. Mm -hmm. 
All right, that's a lot of nerdy talk. It's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So my takeaway from this paper is that I generally agree with the author's conclusions. I, I have been convinced by the evidence that people exhibit a general preference for natural over synthetic drugs, and that this is stronger for psychological rather than physical conditions. Yeah, and I generally agree with the title of the paper because then I wouldn't have had to read the whole thing because it just said it right there. All right, um, <laughs> Ethan, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? All right, the bottom line is that participants are more likely to prefer natural remedies to synthetic ones for psychological conditions. And we need to design good interventions to educate patients on the relative safety of synthetic remedies, as well as the potential harms of unregulated and untested natural remedies. All right. And um, I guess I guess I should resolve the case as the physician because I gave the case. And so this is how I would see the case being resolved. Um, we would inform the patient about the provisional diagnosis of a major depressive disorder with anxiety. And I would point the patient towards a reputable website to get some more information. He could also be given the local crisis phone number in case he starts feeling worse and wants to talk to anyone. And then I'd probably also send a brief letter to his primary care physician informing them that they were to the emergency department for that problem and asking them to follow up and have a discussion about outpatient management. But from your aspect, how do you think that this should be clinically applied? Well, I, I think that there's systematic biases in the way that patients are probably going to be evaluating potential treatments, especially for psychological conditions. So in terms of clinical applications, I think that these studies and this paper really push us to consider that funding agencies and, and researchers should start identifying ways to mitigate these sorts of biases to best help patients make informed decisions about their treatment. All right. And I guess I'll take also the what do you tell the patient thing, because, you know, when you and I are flying on an airplane somewhere and they go, is there a doctor on board? Um, you're not going to stand up and say, well, I've got a PhD in uh, behavioral economics. You're going to turn to me and give me an elbow and say, you're going to deal with this one, right, Dad? I think that's just because I'm lazy. <laughs> Maybe. Or that you're up in first class and I'm back in steerage. Wow. Okay. True. All right. So here's what I would tell the patient. I think your palpitations were a result of depression with anxiety. And this is a very common, and I'm glad you came to the emergency department to get it checked out. I hear what you're saying about taking a medication and other patients have similar concerns. Now, you may not need pharmaceutical treatment. However, just because something is synthetic does not make it bad. And here's some information from the Mayo Clinic that you can read. It's a good place to start learning about depression. And then, of course, I'd encourage you to talk to your primary care physician to determine What's the best way forward for you? And then if you get into any trouble, here's a card with a phone number. You can talk to someone 24-7, 365. And if you're otherwise worried or concerned, we'd always be happy to see you in the emergency department. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest. Last week's winner was... There were many responses to last week's question, but there was no winner. The answer we were looking for was Dr. Henry Janeway. He was an American anesthesiologist practicing in Bellevue Hospital in New York. Dr. Janeway is credited as the pioneer of the first handheld direct laryngoscope with a distal light source and battery power within the handle. 
What's the question this week, Ethan? What natural herb has some evidence that it can treat mild to moderate depression? So if you know the name of the herb, and it's not called herb, it's the name of the herb, if you know that could be used to treat mild or moderate depression, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, Ethan, this this was so much fun. Thank you for coming on. You, you're the one who sent me this paper and said, hey, you know, this is kind of a cool paper. And I'm like, hey, I could finally get you on the SGEM. I know I've been waiting to come on for a while and I'm really excited that I finally had the chance to do an episode with you. I've been hearing you do these podcasts for years now at this point. And so it's fun to see, you know, how it gets made. Because you're familiar with the program, you know that there's one final responsibility. So Ethan, can you read the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Yeah.